0: Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out, starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Isser Harrell and his Mossad team of Israeli intelligence operatives sped off with former SS officer and Nazi henchman Adolf Eichmann in the back seat. Eichmann's head was pressed down so that passerbys would not see it. He showed no resistance. The once arrogant, intimidating official, who helped carry out the extermination of some 11 million Jews and minorities, was now a shell of his former self and at the mercy of his captors. Mossad members had gagged Eichmann, tied his hands and feet, placed goggles over his eyes to block his vision, and lowered him to the floor of the getaway car. During the whole operation, Eichmann remained silent. Mossad members limited their verbal interaction with him to a single terse If you don't keep still, you'll be shot. Part one of Operation Finale had gone relatively smoothly, and Eichmann was in the hands of Israeli forces. Now came the hard part. He had to be smuggled out of Argentina without anyone realizing his identity and returned to Israel, where he would stand trial and face the victims of one of the world's worst acts of genocide that he, Adolf Eichmann helped orchestrate. Part two of Just a Moment, next on The Missing Chapter. Welcome, everybody, to this episode
1: of The Missing Chapter. I am Phil Schaff here with Phil Hornder. And before we get to Just a Moment, part two, let's talk about what's in the coffee pot today. And it's from my sister's coffee house and bakery, fixed coffee house out of Louisville, Kentucky. And it's Frank's favorite. Um, on behalf of uh, my family, we... we Thank you, Karen, for providing uh, Frank's favorite to us, um, as well as naming this this uh, pot of coffee after our late grandfather. So shout out to Karen and Fixed House and Frank's favorite, which, by the way, is a rich, full-body roasted hazelnut aroma with tastes of chocolate. And I'll tell
0: you, it's one of our favorites, Phil. Yep. It's very, very good. Um, the response to last week's part one of Just a Moment was very encouraging. I think most of you guys enjoyed it. And we introduced you to the first part of Operation Finale, the Israeli hunt for uh, former SS officer Adolf Eichmann. So today's episode, we're going to pick right up where we left off in part one, Phil.
1: Yeah, so uh, listen, we, we had a lot of questions. I think some of them got answered. Now, what I'm curious about is where you take us for the second part, because you kind of left a little cliffhanger uh, with part one. But um, the story in, in and of itself is is really just not only thought-provoking, but honestly mesmerizing right. in, in my perspective.
0: And it took a, a long time to get to this point. Um, a lot of planning, a lot of waiting. The Israelis have Eichmann in their possession. And in many ways, that was the easy part. And, and a lot of the issues and obstacles that the, the team, the Mossad team was planning on having to overcome, that part is just uh, getting underway. All right. So All right. take it away. So, Massad arrived at the designated safe house, parked in the garage, quickly shut the garage door. It was 8.55 in the evening, and it was only 50 minutes after Eichmann's bus had dropped him off on Garibaldi Street. Okay. So, all in all, things are moving pretty quickly, and I think probably, probably because they're moving smoothly at this point. He was taken into the house, and one of his legs was immediately shackled to an old bed frame. Next, they checked his mouth for poison to ensure that he wouldn't try and kill himself. And, and if we, we look back on the Nuremberg trials that happened in the years, you know, following World War II, a lot of the condemned SS officers took their own lives using cyanide pills. Right. So they kind of had anticipated that and wanted to make sure right off the bat that that wasn't going to be the case. And kind of in, in shadows of what Hitler did himself. Exactly. You know? yeah. They removed his clothes, dressed him in pajamas, uh, loose, litting, uh, loose uh, flowing clothes. Yep. The thing that struck the Mossad team members immediately and the most was how unexceptional Eichmann was. Hmm. You know, his appearance, his demeanor, everyone who saw him in the team was surprised by the fact that he wasn't more sinister or physically imposing years on the run in and out of hiding had taken their toll on him. And the circumstances certainly had to gone were the uniform, the badges, all of the prestige and power that came with them. And as Mossad team members would later recount, Adolf Eichmann was pretty much harmless and ordinary. Yeah. That's not the picture that I painted in my head, at least. Yeah. And it, it sounds like it wasn't the picture that they had in their own minds. Right. either. So. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They inspected him for the SS tattoo under his left armpit to confirm his identity, but only a scar remained from where it had been removed. An interrogator worked to get him to admit his true identity. And though at first he insisted that he was still Ricardo Clement, eventually he succumbed and admitted his real name. Oh, wow. So they didn't really have to go seeking. He actually broke it. Not as much as they had anticipated, right? Yeah. Eichmann revealed, quote, that when he was briefly in American hands after the war, he had tried successfully to remove the number tattoo with a
1: blade.
0: And all of the other distinguishing features that Mossad had on file were located. So they did confirm, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt that, um, that this was, in fact, Adolf Eichmann, the person that they were out for. And it was apparent at this point, too, that reality was slowly setting in for Eichmann. And he was becoming more and more nervous. He went from not wanting to admit his true identity to willingly cooperating. And at times, he wouldn't even hesitate when responding to their questions and demands, while other times he offered up information. So, Is there a reason for that, do you think? I mean, you, I know it's speculation at this point, but. I think I think he knew inevitably what was going to happen. And I think if he were to fight, he knew he was outnumbered. The circumstances definitely weren't in his favor. Okay. And he was just cooperating now.
1: So at this point, he kind of saw the writing on the wall. Right. And, okay. Uh,
0: another, uh, this time, a quote from a Mossad member. Quote, gone was the SS officer who had once hundreds of men to carry out his commands. Now he was frightened and nervous, at times pathetically eager to help. So I have to imagine whether they wanted to admit it or not, this had to be pretty satisfying, you know, for the members of Mossad, especially because we said in part one last week that the majority of them had actual personal stories of loss associated with the Holocaust. So Eichmann remained at the safe house for a week and never out of the sight of his captors. The next stage of Operation Finale would prove to be the most delicate and the most dangerous. How would they get him out of Argentina and back to Israel? Where would he stand trial for his war crimes? They'd arranged for an El Al plane to depart on uh, Buenos Aires on May 20th, all right, in the year 1960. El Al is Israeli Airlines, okay, uh, the flag-bearing airline of Israel. Yeah. Uh, it made its inaugural flight in September of 1948. And they decided on the 20th and not any sooner um, because they waited to buy their tickets so as not to arouse suspicions from the Argentinian authorities.
1: Which would make sense. So they're laying
0: low for a while, right, because they know Eichmann's disappearance is going to arouse suspicion uh, alone, right? One big question hung over the heads of Iser Harel and his Mossad team members. They couldn't answer it, speculated, but ultimately had to wait. Would Eichmann's family contact authorities? Or would they announce his disappearance and ask for public support and locating him? Harrell was basically alone in thinking that they would not. He was convinced that they would get in touch with contacts of theirs, but do so quietly. And according to him, even they couldn't afford having his true identity come to light in world news.
1: Yeah, I guess that's true, because I'm I'm thinking from my perspective, obviously, uh, we would obviously raise a lot of red flags. And we try to get as many people known about this, but from their perspective, yeah, I don't know if it's smart to blow the cover just, uh, you know, too soon.
0: Right. And I think the thinking here is that the family might know that within Argentina, it would have been acceptable you know, to be hiding out in this country, but to the rest of the world, yeah. having it be only 1960, uh, a lot of questions would be asked of, of the government.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So even his ex-Nazi associates had to remain silent and play it safe for fear of being exposed themselves. Mossad was not the only organization within Israel who'd taken upon themselves to hunt down and capture former SS officers. Several other Nazi hunters, including the renowned Simon Wiesenthal, were devoting their lives to bringing former German officers to justice.
1: Wow.
0: You know, and as it turned out, Eichmann's family called hospitals. They uh, contacted clinics, but did avoid in the end calling the police like Harrell had predicted. They contacted friends, but none were willing to help. And we, I mean, I
1: think we, we all know the reason why is, Is it because of his obvious background? That's why no one really wants to get involved in any of this?
0: Right. And another uh, quote from Harrell in his book, I think this is setting off almost like a domino effect. Most of them ran for their lives and scattered all over the continent. Mm -hmm. Some even headed back for Europe, just in case the group who had seized Hitler's henchmen were also on their tracks. So I I think a lot of them, listen, Eichmann, you're on your own. And I'm more worried who's waiting for me when I go home tonight. So things were going well up until this point for Massad, and their planning and attention to details had certainly paid off. Now came the task of getting Eichmann out of Argentina without arousing suspicions. On the day prior to their departure, so this is May 19th, an agent was sent to a local hospital complaining of head trauma he had received from an accident. He exhibited gradual progress over the next 24 hours, and as luck would have it, the patient recovered enough to check himself out on May 20th, and prepare to fly home. Mossad then substituted Eichmann's name and photograph for the agent playing the patient. Come on. So they're laying the groundwork here for the next step. So they want to give everyone in Argentina the idea that this person had had an accident. He's going to be acting maybe a little bit, quote unquote, off when he's at the airport. And we'll talk about the next step. Eichmann was then administered drugs on the ride to the airport so that he would be more passive and his senses dulled. He could still walk, but needed the assistance of two agents, one on either side of him. But again, if anyone asked, he had had the previous stay in the hospital to explain why he's a little uh, right. lethargic. He was dressed even in an al uniform. Harrell later said the Nazi prisoner cooperated so fully that one stage he reminded his captors that they'd forgotten to put on his airline jacket. And that Eichmann felt that this would bring attention to him because his garb would be conspicuously different from the other members of the squad who were fully dressed. <laughs> Harold remembers Eichmann speaking to them almost in a lecturing tone. So a little bit of the remnants of what Adolf Eichmann yeah. were, were coming out. The Mossad team drove to the airport in three separate cars with Eichmann being strategically positioned in the middle. All right. Car number two. The men in the first car began singing and laughing as they approached the security guards at the airport entrance. The driver explained to them they'd enjoyed themselves a little too much the night prior and that they were still dozing off and getting the festivities out of their systems. And the guards didn't question their, th- their story. I'm kind you know, of
1: seeing it, where this is
0: going here. And you know what? As I did this research, I'm thinking they had, I mean, such a great plan. Yeah. They'd thought of everything. Yeah. Two Mossad agents and the half-conscious Eichmann boarded the plane. Interestingly, Harrell had to issue stern warnings to the plane's crew that no one mishandle him through the remaining steps of the trip. The plane's engines fired and it taxi down the runway. Isser Harrell and his Mossad team were leaving South America and returning home, in their possession, the most wanted man in the world by Israeli operatives. W. Edwards Deming once wrote, the world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of
1: knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to The Missing Chapter Podcast with us, Phil Schoff and Phil Horrender. Well, Phil, this has been quite the episode. Um, A two-parter, we're at the part now where we're kind of closing things up and... As we were talking before the break, I really got thinking we're at the crucial point in history right now where we're losing Holocaust survivors, we're losing World War II vets. And it's obviously, I think it's our duty as history teachers, but just as as people, as civilians, as, as uh, citizens of the United States and citizens of the world, of course, I think it's our responsibility to keep the truth alive. Do you feel like it's, it's stories like this that can
0: help advocate for that? I think so. And I think that as teachers and as parents, and like you said, just as, as members of society, it's the Holocaust and people's connections to that as they read about it and, and hear podcasts or watch documentaries. You know, you have to understand, Phil, that there's never been a point really in the last 100 years plus where there hasn't been an act of genocide being conducted somewhere on the globe, you know, whether it be Darfur or Myanmar, Rwanda, Yugoslavia, you know, you, it's nice to go out through the duration of your day and not have to worry about those things. If, right. you're, if you're fortunate enough, which I know we are, but to stop and consider what other people are experiencing. And you said it, I mean, in the scope of history, the Holocaust that, you know, that happened during World War II was yesterday. It wasn't that long. Right. Ago. That's a good point. So i I do. I think this is an important it's it's entertaining to listen to a story like this, but it's also there's a responsibility,
1: yeah, you know, that we all share. yeah, and I think one of the uniting factors of of history is that sometimes it 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 kind of sparks your conscience it it almost arouses your empathy for people, and I think that's a uniting factor, whether you're uh, a, a United States citizen, a German, a, you know a, a worldwide uh, you know civilian. it doesn't right. really matter it, it that's the Uniting factor that I think history provides us sometimes. No,
0: I think I think that is beautifully put. I think it's this is not Jewish versus what other minorities Hitler targeted, whether it be homosexuals, handicap, um, uh, whatever the case may be. This was humanity, yeah, you know, being yeah. targeted. So I very well put. Um, Adolf Eichmann stood trial before an Israeli court in 1961, and I think that's interesting. They got him back mid-1960, they're not going to waste any time. They're not going to draw this out. They're mm-hmm. not going to keep him in a cell for years and and let him wait. They want to start doing this right away. The case occurring some 16 years after the end of World War II. It unleashed a tsunami of emotions as victims, family members, recounted the ghastly crimes that the Nazis perpetrated against the Jews. Eichmann appeared in court, listened to the proceedings from a bulletproof glass box. Mm-hmm. Nightmares that had been repressed but were still very fresh, evidently fresh in the minds of the Israeli public and in the Jewish community as a whole, overflowed. People screamed and cried throughout the trial. Eichmann's full role in orchestrating and then implementing Hitler's final solution campaign was laid out over the duration of the trial. And Phil, this is really what resonated with me and what stood out. There comes a point where Eichmann eventually asks for understanding, he asks for forgiveness, and he asks for mercy. From the Jewish people. And as I read this, I always go back and I know, you know, we have kids. My mind always goes to the children, the innocent people, men, women, and children who Eichmann not only carried out this atrocity against, but targeted. Yeah. And the way that he viewed these people. And here he is asking for mercy and not surprisingly, he's not given it um he claimed that he was merely taking orders um he referred to it as being a cog in the Nazi machine and that it was the Nazi government's fault and not his specifically but in the end Adolf Eichmann is convicted of war crimes and hanged later in 1961
1: you know you bring up a good point that it's not only carried out through the kids but actually targeted certain individuals yeah. and i think that's a that's a really big distinction you have to make as we talk about keeping the truth in history and what's what's interesting to me is that the the courtroom, uh, the the environment in that courtroom, like you said, being so emotional, mm-hmm. um going back to the empathy that you have, we we always tell the kids in our classes that you know some of these really awful individuals like your Stalins, your mao Zedongs, your your Hitlers, obviously, do they directly kill you know the, these millions of people, or do they have? Um, they're essentially like they're minions carrying out these, right. these missions for them. And I think this falls within that, that this is a guy who, whether or not he is just blindly following his superior's orders or whether he's really believing in it, he's still responsible.
0: Right. And one of the things we touched on in episode one was as the dossier was being read by Issa Harel, that overriding sense of, of pride he was taking. Mm. This was not, I had to be convinced to do it. I wanted to do it.
1: Yeah, it's almost it's an eerie sense of like almost passion,
0: right, for
1: that, which right. is disturbing to say the least, yeah.
0: 21 days after Eichmann's execution, unrest boiled over in Argentina. In June of 1962, nationalist extremists abducted a 19-year-old Jewish girl, torturing her and scarring her with swastikas. In the ensuing months, the Argentinian government de- decried Israel's actions uh, in the United Nations. And the Israeli ambassador was expelled from Argentina for a brief uh, period of time. Eventually, however, tensions between the two nations would lessen and relations would return to normalcy. The Mossad, it's interesting to note, did not officially acknowledge their role in the Adolf Eichmann abduction until February of 2005.
1: Oh, my gosh. So if I have this right in my head, 61 is the trial. Right. 2005, 2005. they finally acknowledged yeah. it. That's incredible. Yeah. Why do you think that was? And I, I, I can make an assumption. Uh,
0: you know, I think it was more so that people knew that groups like Mossad conducted under the radar um, plans like this. Yeah. But it would probably have hurt. And again, this is my assumption. Maybe it would hurt some other things that they were doing throughout the world or put people at risk um, conducting those operations, mm-hmm. that they, they wouldn't openly admit that they had played such a vital role. I mean, they were the entire backbone to this.
1: Right. So they're going to they're, gonna, they're gonna play on right. the side of caution, 100%, even, even so many years afterwards. Yeah, yeah. That's, and that's very kind similar of to was. our
0: CIA. I mean, we, yeah. we know. We know even if they don't come forward and say, yes, we're conducting you know operations like this around the world. Right. I mean, there's a lot of trust that you have to put into those groups that they're going to do it properly. Oh, yeah, I agree. But, um, you know, I I think you mentioned this earlier, Phil. There's a lot to take away from these two episodes. I think there's a lot to learn. Uh, We certainly, we tell kids in our classes, you can't understand what these people went through. You can appreciate what they tell us in their words and in their writing, but we can't say, "I, I can understand what they're going through. But hopefully stories like this make you think about your own life, make you think about you know, what's going on in the world around us. And in some small way, you know, maybe that'll make the world a better place.
1: Yeah. Well, I, and I, I just got to say thank you for uh, for this two-part episode. This is this was incredible. This is something you've been talking about. Uh, for the lis- listeners at home, this is something that, that uh, Phil's been talking about for a while. And uh, I really didn't even want to know anything about it. We usually do that anyway. But for this one specifically, I said, don't tell me a single detail. And this, this just blew my mind. And I hope it did the same for the listeners. Uh, so Phil, thank you. And, My pleasure. Uh, Yeah, everybody at home, don't forget to uh, follow us on social media, as well as access our website, themissingchapterpodcast.com. Uh, and uh, don't forget to check out our merchandise as well. We got uh, a lot of things there for you to represent The Missing Chapter. Once again, thank you. And we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff, And I'm Phil Horander. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.